Okay, in this class, we're going to talk about interventions provided by the foot and nail care nurse to include patient education, specific referrals, and professional practice issues. So, this is a list of the primary interventions that we provide as foot and nail care nurses. Of course, hygienic care, um, identification of the free nail border, which has to precede any thinning um, and debridement of the nails. We pair or buff corns and calluses. We should be prepared to manage ingrown nails, fungal infections, other common lesions. We should be able to provide recommendations regarding padding and protective products, education regarding footwear and foot care, and indicated referrals. So let's go through each one of those. Some of these things we have referenced briefly, but I want to go through and make sure that we address all the key principles. So what about hygienic care? We've talked about how important that is. So when the client comes in to your foot and nail clinic or you go to them, how are you going to provide hygienic care? So you have a couple of options. You can do a brief soak or you can simply provide thorough washing with mild soap and warm water followed by rinsing and of course thorough drying especially between the toes. Now when we do a brief soak we usually take a tub and just add mild soap and warm water and we usually allow the feet to soak for about 10 minutes. That is safe even for diabetic patients because we control the temperature and we control drying between the toes, which are the two major issues with foot soaks on the part of diabetic patients. Once we have cleaned and dried the skin, we will apply emollients or humectants to the slightly damp skin, not between the toes as we have said before. And we also briefly talked about options for very dry, flaky skin. So if you're in a setting where you can do this, you can do a vinegar water soak, that one to three ratio. So one cup of vinegar to three cups of water, two cups of vinegar to six cups of water for 10 minutes, rinse the feet, dry well between the toes, and then provide humectants such as lachydrin, that's a prescription product, or petrolatum-based moisturizing products. So you either do the brief soak or you do thorough washing, but you always start with hygienic care, which gives you a great opportunity to talk with the patient about how they're managing hygienic care at home, what modifications they might need to make, review the type of moisturizer they're using, and if there are any issues with drying between the toes, suggest specific options like a very long towel. Next, you want to identify the free nail border. So we have discussed at length what we mean by the free nail border. That's the portion of the nail that extends beyond the nail bed beyond the hyponychium. Critical to identify the free nail border prior to doing any nipping. 
I particularly like the illustration mid-screen so you can clearly see what we mean by the free nail and the free nail border. To do this, you can use either an orange wood stick or a stainless steel spatula. We prefer stainless steel spatulas because they're extremely flat and because we can disinfect them. Remember to hold your spatula parallel to the skin. So you wanna maintain a neutral angle of your spatula. If your elbow goes up, that means the spatula is going down and digging into the skin. If your elbow remains neutral, it means the spatula is neutral and you're just exploring the border and not digging in and not causing pain. Now look at the illustration on the bottom. Look at the second toe where you have extensive callus on the distal aspect of the toe. And of course it totally obscures um, the free nail border. So in this case, you would begin by pairing the callus. Once you have eliminated the callus, then you can identify the free nail border. Once you have identified the free nail border, now you can begin to clip the nails. Now, a few guidelines here. If you have thickened nails, like hypertrophic nails, fungal nails, you need to thin the nails before clipping because the clipper can't handle extremely thick nails and you'd be at high risk for causing splitting. So anytime the nails are very thick, you either use the electric grinder, a coarse emery board, or some kind of surfactant solution to thin the nails before you begin to clip. You're always gonna trim side to side, and you're gonna follow the free nail border. It's better to take small little bites, take small amounts of the nail at a time, that helps to prevent splitting or tearing of the nails. And once you get into clinical, your preceptor will show you exactly what we mean by this. We'll also demonstrate in the next class. After you have completed trimming of the nails, you're gonna file the nails so that you assure smooth edges. You never want to leave a sharp edge or a torn edge that could penetrate the soft tissue and cause infection or cause an ingrown nail. Now let's talk about hypertrophic nails. This is a very common problem. And probably the most common approach is to thin with a handheld drill like the Dremel, or you could also use a coarse emery board prior to nipping. We will talk a little bit more about how to use the Dremel safely, but primarily you'll acquire that skill in clinical if your preceptor does choose to use a handheld drill. So either a handheld drill, you can always use a coarse emery board, it just takes longer to get the nail thinned down. The other option is to obtain three-way antiseptic keratolytic solution. I believe that is the only version of this on the market, so that's why I use the uh, trade name, three-way. You can take a cotton ball, soak it in the solution, put it on the nail for at least three minutes, 
Some clinicians have used mineral oil or just warm water for five minutes. And then you can actually trim the nail from the top down before you trim from side to side. Now, I have done this in the acute care setting because in the acute care setting, we do not use handheld drills due to the risk of fungal dust causing infections in the hospital. So when I've had to deal with very thick nails in the acute care setting, I have routinely used the thin with the keratolytic solution or soften with the keratolytic solution and then trim from the top down. Not perfect, but it does work. So if you're in a situation where you do not feel comfortable using a handheld drill where there are infection control issues, that is the best alternative is to thin from the top down and then side to side. So we have addressed the fact that use of a handheld drill is controversial because most of your patients with hypertrophic nails do have a fungal nail infection. And when you use the handheld drill, you will aerosolize fungal dust. That means you must wear goggles and a mask. You must consider the care setting and you may need to use an alternative. Corns and calluses are another extremely common challenge in clinical practice. So if you see five clients, five patients, I can almost guarantee you that one or two of them will have corns or calluses that require pairing. Now we will demonstrate this in the next class. And again, you'll have the opportunity to do this in clinical and you'll follow your preceptor's guidelines. But let me just go over some basic principles. Um, as you know, calluses and corns almost always have a hard outer layer. Once you remove the hard outer layer, you have a soft inner core. The guidelines for pairing hard callus and soft callus or soft corn are different. If you're pairing hard callus or hard corn, you want to pair one layer at a time coming from top down. That minimizes any discomfort to the patient and any risk of tissue trauma. So what you want to do is you want to hold your scalpel or your cutting curette parallel to the hard corner callus and literally come across. You can do one of two things. You can kind of catch and lift or you can catch and saw, but you remain parallel. You do not dig down. Once you get down to soft callus, now you're going to reverse. And if you look at the bottom illustration, you can see that now we're holding the callus, excuse me, we're holding the scalpel vertical to the skin at a right angle to the skin. And we're using a scraping maneuver to again, remove that soft callus, that soft corn, one layer at a time. 
Now, if you're buffing or sanding a callus or a corn, you want to do it just in one direction. You don't go back and forth, back and forth. You just come down, down, down to avoid friction damage. Throughout the procedure, you're monitoring the color and the texture of the skin. As the color and texture of the skin approach normal, you should discontinue pairing. The other thing you should think about when pairing, if this is a patient, a client that you have seen before, and if you're pairing a callus that has been paired before, you want to ask them whether or not they want you to take all of the callus or whether they want you to leave a layer or two of callus. It totally depends on the individual. Some people want you to remove absolutely as much as you can, and others want you to leave a few layers because they say once you remove it all, their foot is too sensitive. So client input, very important. And finally, you want to think about how did this person get this callus or this corn, and what do I need to do to eliminate that cycle of injury? So do we need to change out their footwear? Do we need to send them to an orthotist for customized insoles? Do we need to use a toe sleeve so the toes aren't rubbing together to cause a corn between the toes? Eliminate the source of the friction. You will also frequently be in a position where you need to treat fungal infections of the skin. So, of course, we always assess for interdigital fissures or for signs of tinea pedis, which are likely to be those little circular flaking lesions on the plantar surface. Typically, we treat with an antifungal cream or spray, most commonly the spray. It can be myconazole, clotrimazole, or terbinafine. Instruct the patient to apply it to clean, dry skin once or twice a day, depending on the manufacturer's guidelines, and to continue treatment for four weeks. It takes time to eradicate the fungus. You're also teaching the patient, dry well between your toes. Do not go barefoot. Wear footwear that's breathable, so it should be leather or suede or cloth, not plastic. You remind the patient, treat or replace your footwear to prevent reinfection. And if the patient does develop recurrent or persistent infection, you want to refer them to the podiatrist. Now, management of ingrown nails. You check first to see, are there any signs of infection? Do you have erythema? Do you have edema? Do you have purulent drainage? Is there acute pain at the site? If you are not a prescribing provider, if you're not advanced practice, then you'll need to collaborate with the prescribing provider to assure that the patient is getting antibiotics to eradicate the soft tissue infection. If the nails are thickened, and many times they are, you begin by thinning the nails either with your electric grinder 
with your core seam reboard or with your softening solution followed by trimming from top down. Once you get the nail thinned, now you're ready to try to lift out the ingrown nail. So you're going to lift the corner. You want to slide the blade of your nipper all the way through so that the nail, the corner of the nail, is caught between the blades of the nipper but in the center. You never want the nail to be at the end of the nipper because that's how you tear nails and cause greater tissue trauma. So if this is the corner of my nail and this is my nipper, I slide the base of the nipper under the corner of the nail, slide it over so the nail is midpoint, and then clip. Then I'm going to file. I'm going to check to see do I have a free nail border. I'm going to repeat that lift, nip, file until I have a free nail border. And then I'm going to pack with a thin strip of alcohol wipe. Now the purpose of the thin strip of alcohol wipe is to prevent recurrence of the ingrown nail. So as you can see from the illustrations, you're going to take your alcohol wipe. I take a very narrow strip. I'm going to put the mid portion of the alcohol wipe right at the corner. And then I'm going to try to pack it down along the lateral nail fold and along the distal nail. The way it works is if I can get that little strip of alcohol wipe or cotton ball into place, when the nail tries to grow down into the soft tissue, it's blocked by that little strip. And we will, again, demonstrate this in our next class, and you will see it firsthand when you're doing your clinical. Many times you will need to recommend padding and protective products. And these are just some of the products that are available. If you go online, you'll be amazed. Even if you just go to the foot care section of Walmart or CVS, it's amazing what all they have. So they have moleskin patches, which is what you see on top. These are great for um, padding areas of callus formation. Also, if you have a very thin blister with minimal fluid, you could use moleskin over the intact skin to protect that blister. <clears throat> then if you look at the slides um, in the center and the bottom right, you have toe sleeves. Some of your toe sleeves are foam-based. Some of them are gel-based. And you can try both to see which one works better or fits better. In general, your gel toe sleeves conform a little bit better, but your foam toe sleeves are better for maintaining a drier surface. So sometimes one is better, sometimes another is better. They come in multiple sizes, so you can pick one that matches the diameter or the circumference of the toe that you're trying to protect if you're protecting a toe. Um, they also make toe separators, which you see to the far left, and they make um, devices that are designed to protect bunion bones, 
which is what you see in the middle on the bottom. So many, many options out there. You want to think about sleeves or protectors, any, any place you have corns, any place you have calluses, any place there's an area of persistent erythema or flat blisters with intact skin. So go online, look at some of the protective products, go to your local pharmacy and Walmart, look at some of the protective products. And again, once you get into clinical, you're gonna see all of these protective products. Now, what about insoles? So if you have calluses over the metatarsal heads, if you have calluses over the heels, if you have any areas of persistent erythema or pain on the plantar surface, you need to look at insoles. Now you have a number of options when it comes to insoles. Look at the illustration on top. It shows you some of the commercially available insoles. So there's a lot of insoles available just over the counter. You can just walk in and pick insoles. And that's an acceptable option for the patient who has intact sensation and no bony deformities. They probably just need a little bit of extra padding to compensate for thinning of their fat pads. But if you have a patient who has lost protective sensation, if you have a patient with abnormally prominent metatarsal heads or significant deformities, you do not want to recommend over-the-counter insoles. Instead, you want to send the patient to a podorthus for customized insoles. And typically, they'll base that customized insole on um, either pressure mapping or an impression of the patient's foot. Okay, let's talk a little bit about footwear guidelines. So there's some general guidelines when you're talking to your clients, to your patients. Um, you wanna make sure they're following these guidelines in buying new footwear. Footwear is the source of a lot of the problems that people come in with. People who complain of their feet hurting all the time, many times it's the shoes that they're wearing. So. First of all, we always want a good fit, which means the toe box has to be deep enough to accommodate any deformities, any hammer toes, any mallet toes, any claw toes. So make sure, and any overlapping toes. So make sure that the toe box is deep enough. Signs that the toe box is not deep enough, erythema, wounds, corns on the tops of the toes. Also make sure that the shoe um, provides appropriate width, that it's wide enough, that it's long enough. So we talked about doing a tracing of the patient's foot while that patient's standing, then putting the shoe on top of the tracing to make sure that there's no point at which the tracing extends beyond the edge of the shoe. So that's actually a very simple, very helpful strategy. You wanna make sure that footwear is appropriately padded. You want a padded insole 
and a padded outer layer, so make sure that there is appropriate padding. In general, athletic shoes are a pretty good choice for routine wear because they usually do have a sufficiently wide toe box, frequently a toe box of sufficient depth. Many times it's a combination of leather and cloth, so there's breathability and conformability. So just as a starting point, think about athletic shoes. But remember, if your patient has bony deformities, they require customized footwear. They have to be referred to a podorthist. And then in terms of socks, they can either use cotton socks or a cotton synthetic blend, but you want to avoid seams and you want to tell them if your socks have holes, they need to go. Now, what about at-risk individuals? So these are people who have lost protective sensation or they have bony deformities or a combination. So first of all, they need to know, always wear protective footwear, which means firm soles and correctly fitted. And they should have those on anytime they're out of bed. If they have intact sensation and no deformities, so this is a patient who's low risk. They can feel if the shoe does not fit correctly and they don't have any deformities that have to be accommodated. They can buy their shoes off the shelf. Still, it's best if they buy leather or suede uh, uppers because they're conformable. They should avoid rigid, non-breathable materials such as plastic in general. They're not good for your feet. So a lot of the Crocs are not good for your feet. You need padded insoles, padded outer soles, you already know you need to avoid shoes with heels or you need to limit any heels to low wedge type heels. And finally, when you look at closures, this matters most for um, diabetic patients with neuropathy, but in general, laces or hook and eye closures are gonna give you the best fit. Now, if they, have in, <clears throat> if they have intact sensation and no deformities, as we said, they can buy their shoes off the rack, but there's still some guidelines they should follow. First of all, they should buy at the end of the day because if they have any edema at all, it's gonna be greatest at the end of the day. And you want any new shoes they buy to accommodate their feet at their largest size. If they have one foot that's larger than another, I bet a lot of you have one foot this bigger than the other, then you should base the size of your new shoes on the size of the largest foot, not the smallest foot. If you're gonna be wearing very thin socks or hosiery with these shoes, that's what you should wear when you're trying the shoes on. If you're going to be wearing thick socks, that's what you should be wearing when you try the shoes on. It all seems so logical, but I've gotten to the store many times and I haven't followed any of these guidelines. And sometimes I've paid for it later. You wanna make sure that the shoe is long enough, which should be a half inch longer 
than the longest tote. So ideally, you're in a store where you can fit. You can check the size of your foot and then match it to the shoe size. But if not, measure your foot, take the measuring tape and make sure that the shoe is longer than your longest toe, at least a half inch longer than your longest toe and that it has a sufficiently wide toe box. Back to the Tracy. You wanna break new shoes in gradually. The recommendation for diabetics is that they increase wear time by two hours a day and check for areas of redness or tenderness. So the first day they wear the shoes two hours, second day four hours, then six. You get, you get the point. Okay, so that's your low-risk patients. Now, what about your higher-risk patients? What about your patient who has intact sensation but also has deformities? Now, if they have flexible deformities, like a hammer toe that can be straightened out um, and managed with um, splints, then they have a choice. They can either purchase footwear that accommodates the deformity, the hammer toe, or they can use the splints and footwear that supports the hammer toe in the corrected position. So they can either use corrective footwear or accommodative footwear. But if they have rigid deformities, if they have fixed hammer toes, fixed mallet toes, fixed claw toes, they have to use accommodative footwear. It's too late for corrective footwear. So that means in clinical practice, if you have patients with hammer toes, mallet toes, claw toes, hallux rigidus, overlapping toes, you need a, t a deep toe box. And also hallux limitus, you need a deep toe box. If you have a patient with Hallux valgus, a bunion, or a bunionette, you need a wide toe box. If you have a bunion and overlapping toes, you need a wide and deep toe box. So toe box is a feature of tremendous concern when you're selecting footwear. If you have patients with loss of protective sensation, they should not buy their shoes off the rack because they can't tell. They won't know that the toe box is too narrow and is rubbing until it's too late. They won't know that the shoe's not quite long enough until it's too late. They require professionally fitted shoes. So they need to go to a store that has someone who can fit their shoes. They need to have their feet measured, and then they need to have shoes selected based on that measurement. The fitter has to have experience, has to consider length, has to consider width, has to consider the shape of the foot and the shape of the shoe and the toe box. Now, who needs customized footwear? First of all, practically no one really wants customized footwear because until recently, most of it's been pretty ugly. 
Fortunately, we're developing some better options, and they're not all ugly. Um, there's still tremendous room for improvement, but they are getting better. But as some of my patients have told me, you know what? Over time, comfort trumps pretty. So if it feels good and doesn't hurt me and doesn't cause me problems, I'll pick that one. And if it's not pretty, it's just too bad. Yes, I would like for it to be stylish, but if I can't have everything, give me comfort. So people need to go to a podorthist and have customized footwear when they have rigid deformities like a Charcot foot. You cannot fit a shoe to a Charcot foot off the rack. They have to be customized. They usually have to be based on a cast of the foot. If the patient has had prior plantar surface ulcers, if they've had a partial foot amputation, they need customized footwear. But customized footwear is very expensive. So then the question arises, well, can the patient afford this? Do insurers cover this? So Medicare does cover customized footwear under certain circumstances. So here's the criteria. If the patient has diabetes and any one of the following, so if they have diabetes and loss of protective sensation, or diabetes and compromised perfusion, or diabetes and a bony deformity, or diabetes and a prior ulceration, or a prior amputation. So you can see that the criteria are pretty liberal. So most of your diabetic patients with any kind of complication are going to qualify for customized footwear. Now, they have to have their um, healthcare provider who manages their diabetes has to write a letter of verification. So it could be an endocrinology, endocrinologist or an internist or a primary care provider, whoever is managing their diabetes has to verify that they have diabetes and loss of protective sensation or diabetes and prior ulceration. That makes them eligible. And then they have to have a prescription written by a podiatrist or a qualified provider. So the way it would work as your, um, whoever your provider that manages your diabetes. So let's say your internist manages your diabetes. So they have to write a letter verifying that you have diabetes and that you also have um, a bony deformity or prior ulceration. And then they need to refer you to a podiatrist um, or another qualified provider, but it's usually a podiatrist. And then the, then the podiatrist can assure that you are sent to the right center to get your customized footwear. So it's not easy, but it is covered. Okay, moving on to patient education. Um, we've talked about patient education throughout this course and even throughout this class, but let's now just pull it all together. 
So we want to make sure that we educate our patients about routine foot care. And the key points are routine use of emollients or humectants after bathing and the importance of drying well between the toes. And if we have a patient with recurrent callus, we want to teach them to use an emery board or a pumice stone after bathing to take down the callus or, yes, take down the callus. And you want to give them specific instructions. And it's going to be based on the severity of the callus. But you might say, I want you to take this coarse emery board and I want you to um, go over the area of callus 10 times after bathing twice a week. Give them very specific guidelines. And when they come back, if, the cal if they have more callus than you want, then you either increase frequency or number of strokes. But give them specific recommendations. You want to educate them about footwear, how critically important it is, and what their specific guidelines are. So if you're educating a patient with intact sensation and no significant deformities, you're going over with them the tips on assuring appropriate fit. So go at the end of the day, if you have any swelling at all, pick size based on the largest foot, take your tracing, make sure that there's no point at which the tracing goes beyond the shoe, etc. If they have intact sensation but bony deformities, you're going to provide them specific guidance. Do they need a deep toe box? Do they need a soft conformable upper? Do they need a wide toe box? Let them know what it is that they have to pay particular attention to. If they have reduced sensation and severe deformities, you're going to refer them. They have to have their footwear fitted. You're also going to educate them on injury prevention. This is critical for your patients with neuropathy and your patients with ischemia. So these are things you know very well. I'm just pulling it all together. Protective footwear at all times, but shake out your shoes before you put them on. No sandals, no open-toed shoes. They don't provide adequate protection. Break in your shoes gradually. Give them specific guidelines. Check your water temperature. Make sure you're not sticking your foot into boiling hot water. No bathroom surgery. Yes, you can use a pumice stone. Yes, you can use an emery board. But no, you can't use your pocket knife. You shouldn't be cutting your own nails. Inspect your feet at least once a day, ideally twice a day. And if you can get a skin thermometer, take the temperature at multiple sites and have your feet professionally assessed every three months. What about referrals? Who needs a referral and where do you send them? When should you send someone to a podiatrist? Well, a podiatrist is a specialist and foot pathology and management of those pathologic conditions. So anytime you have a patient with severe bony deformities, if they want surgical correction, 
Anytime you have a difficult ingrown nail that you can't safely and effectively manage on your own, anytime you have a patient with a painful foot condition, they need further workup and management, and anytime you have an infection that doesn't respond to simple over-the-counter remedies or you have a suspicious lesion, you're worried about possible melanoma. When would you send someone to a podorthus, an orthotist? Those are people who are skilled in creating customized insoles and customized footwear. So who needs them? Patients with foot deformities, patients with recurrent callus formation, any patient with excessive pronation so that they can get appropriate inserts, patients with abnormal wear patterns on their footwear. You should refer the patient to vascular if they have lower extremity arterial disease or lower extremity venous disease. And if you have a patient with an open wound and you are not a wound care nurse, you should refer that patient to a wound clinician or a wound clinic. Now the last thing we're going to review is licensure, um, scope of practice, and infection control issues. So let's talk about licensure and scope of practice. You want to check with your state board of nursing to determine if there are any limitations in the scope of practice regarding foot and nail care, and if there are any requirements in terms of credentials. Some state boards do specify that nurses, registered nurses, may provide foot and nail care if they have the appropriate training and certification. Other state boards say nothing, but you need to know what your state board says. We've already talked about the benefits of certification. We highly recommend certification if you're going to be doing foot and nail care. Infection control is always a major concern. You're going to use universal precautions. You routinely use a face shield and a mask if you're using a handheld drill. And you have to know the guidelines for disinfection of equipment. So here they are. Um, if you're using vinyl tubs to do brief soaks um, to provide hygienic care, the best approach is to use tubs with disposable liners. The alternative is to empty the tub, rinse it, dry it, wet it completely with Lysol, and allow it to air dry. Do not dry it but disposable liners are a much better choice. What about your equipment? We recommend stainless steel nippers, stainless steel spatulas, stainless steel drill bits. All of those you can wash, rinse well, dry, and then you can either use autoclave, so heat sterilization, or you can use cold disinfection with a glutaraldehyde solution, typically glutaraldehyde 2%. You have to follow the manufacturer's guidelines, but cold disinfection with glutaraldehyde is very effective because that solution is bactericidal, fungicidal, and viricidal. 
Now you probably know it as Cydex, but it actually comes in a number of different trade names. I wanna emphasize there are different concentrations and different guidelines, so you have to follow manufacturer's guidelines. And finally, reimbursement. We mentioned this early in the course. Third-party reimbursement is available only in outpatient and long-term care facilities. The only people who can bill for reimbursement are advanced practice registered nurses or nurses who are practicing under a physician or an advanced practice registered nurse. That physician, that advanced practice nurse does have to provide you with supervision and this is covered only in an outpatient facility. Thirdly, the patient must meet the criteria. You can't bill just because the patient has difficulty doing their own foot and nail care. That's too bad, I wish we could. But the current guidelines are arterial disease rendering the patient high risk for infection, diabetes with complications. You have to verify with your billing and coding team the specific recommendations, the specific criteria which do change. And then you have to make sure that this patient meets those criteria. And then you have to use the accepted billing terminology and billing system, which at this point is CPT codes. And even at best, billing is very limited and reimbursement is very limited. So remember, a non-advanced practice nurse can provide foot and nail care to individuals and have them self-pay. But before you do that, make sure that foot and nail care is considered to be within your scope of practice according to your state's Board of Nursing. You definitely want the patient to sign a consent for treatment, whether you're advanced practice or non-advanced practice. And again, certification is highly recommended. The final thing, if you are looking to do foot and nail care, make sure that you have the needed equipment. So for assessment, you need a Doppler if you're gonna do ABIs. You need a tuning fork, a reflex hammer, monofilaments, and the Harris mat to do comprehensive assessment. Basic care, you need nippers, you need spatulas, you need pumice stones, and disposable emery boards. If you're going to manage thickened nails, ingrown nails, you also need a handheld drill, mask, shields, disposable scalpels, and you, you need a method and your materials for managing your equipment, for disinfecting your equipment. So just to summarize, here are all the things that you can provide your patient, hygienic care, thinning and debridement of their nails, pairing or buffing of corns and calluses, management of ingrown nails, fungal infections, simple lesions, and wounds, 
recommendations regarding padding and protective products, education regarding footwear and foot care, necessary referrals. But don't forget your professional practice issues. You always have to have a major focus on infection control. You want to make sure this is within your scope of practice. Okay, thank you very much. Congratulations. Let us know if you have any questions.